Well, now we know we have a commercial in the middle of it for Nike, so. Welcome to Dangerous Minds, where we delve into the minds of biohackers and grinders and take a closer look at the tech being implanted and developed by this community. Up first, we want to thank our sponsor, Dangerous Things, who delivers custom gadgetry for the discerning hacker and biohacker. So check them out at DangerousThings.com. We would also like to thank Axion VPN, our solution for keeping our traffic on the internet protected and private. To learn more about the services they provide, please go to www.axionvpn.com. If you or your organization is interested in sponsoring the efforts of the Dangerous Minds podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at www.dangerousminds.io and email us at info at dangerousminds.io and we will be glad to talk to you about it. Once again, listeners, this is Robespierre, the new DMP audio engineer. Last week, we had part one of our discussion with Nick Poole. If you haven't already listened to that, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that episode first. Part two jumps right in, and you might be lost if you don't have the context. Assuming you're ready, enjoy part two of our conversation with Nick Poole. With recent changes in the in the White House, do you see any issues with, we keep going back to rights uh, and changes, but right to augment, that seems to be a very key thing in biohacking values uh, as a whole. And just makes me want to say, um, with this as being a relation of free speech and augmentation within the United States, with those changes in the White House in mind, do you see any dangers? Because just a few months ago, back at the Body Hacks Con in Austin, Texas, a few grinders got together in room hotel room after the con, just talking about it, just their fears, what have you, and it just seemed just overwhelming um, response from everyone there. You know, we had like 30 plus people in the room and it just over and over, people were very much so concerned about their own future, their business. Like uh, you mentioned Grindhouse Wetware, Dangerous Things was there as well. There was a lot of people in the room that basically were just like, this is our livelihood. This is how we eat. And even further, this is really important to me and how I express myself within my own environment it just makes me say what, what's your feelings on that as well. And, you know, just furthermore stacking on, on top of uh, the layering that we've, we've been building towards this, this whole podcast. I think that the political changes that have taken place in the, in the U S with the changes in the white house like, represent sort of a greater social backlash of, of social conservatism. I don't want to talk politics too much uh, out, of, out of respect for the podcast, not out of respect for myself. I scream politics all day long. If somebody come, gets on my Facebook page, they'll, see, they'll be instantly aware of my politics. But I don't have anything against a lot of conservative ideals. But I think social conservatism in the sense that that it's regressive and that, you know, people want to avoid being subjected to too much new scary stuff is really dangerous. And I think that what's happening in the White House is a result of especially an older generation, but also a certain contingent of, of the current generation being exposed to a lot of things that made them uncomfortable socially very quickly 
and now they are taking a stand and saying, I don't, I don't want to see this anymore. I don't want to be scared by the world anymore. I don't want my privilege or my, my comfortable lifestyle to be challenged. And I think that that is a dangerous way to live. I don't think it's a comfortable way to live. I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of people who are most passionate about, about our president and his administration seem really angry and agitated and and upset. It's, It's certainly isn't, for my, you know, it's, it's not the kind of thing that I would go in for. It doesn't look like fun. But uh, it, it also, I think, more than the political aspect of it, the social aspect of it is what's dangerous for this community. Because it, it's a sort of, you know, the, it's exactly the opposite of the sort of progress that we want to make, right? We are looking for total... Um, bodily autonomy. We want to redefine what it is to be a person. Um, And we want people to be able to define it for themselves and to uh, not only express themselves in whatever way they want, but to be literally be themselves in whatever way they want to to define their existence in, in a real physical way. And that is, that's really scary to a lot of people. And I think that this recent political business in the U.S. represents uh, how much work we have to do in convincing people that that's okay. Like I said before, cyborgs and transhumanists and biohackers are not the only people fighting this fight. A lot of trans rights, gay rights, women's rights, all of those things uh, that get subjugated sort of to the social justice warrior flag or whatever, those things are important and they are in a lot of ways our allies in trying to find find a way to to tell people that that it's it's gonna be okay if you let people do this um, society isn't going to collapse in fact society will get better if people are allowed to define themselves in a useful way and also in a similar fashion to the space race I think there's going to be a race for um, cyberization of whatever in whatever form that takes and I we need to get out ahead of it and I think there's a lot of technology that's going to be discovered in people trying to figure out how to put their basically put their cell phone in their arm you know like right now that doesn't seem like a super lofty goal but there's going to be a lot of little discoveries in doing that that are going to really change the way that we practice medicine and engineering and even electronics manufacturing. That's going to be really important. I don't know how you address that politically besides just continuing your work and talking to everybody about it that you can and making it less scary by making it more pervasive. It's really easy to, to change conservative politics on a one-to-one basis because as people, you know, when somebody has someone in their life who's directly affected by those things, their personal feelings take over. They, they, they really quickly sort of understand that like, oh, like I could be the victim here too. Like it wouldn't be too much of a stretch for me to be persecuted. And so I think, you know, talking to people, even the people in your life who are, you know, a little bit more conservative and a little bit more Luddite and just just making, you know, not pushing your politics or your beliefs or even your hobbies on them, but just saying, just making sure that they know like, yeah, I'm into this and it's not a big deal. And um, I think that, 
you know, people should have the right to do this. You know, it's got to be a grassroots thing, I think. It's really tough to, to form a, an organization or a movement or a lobby to push these kinds of ideas because there are just so many lobbies vying for attention from government that you need a lot of money and a lot of influence to change laws from the top. I think it's got to come from the bottom. But there are people who are trying from the top, and I think that that's admirable too. I think if you want to form an organization to protect people's rights, to modify their body, I'm totally into that, and a lot of people are going to be into that. So there's no easy answer, right? But I think it's just transparency and being good representatives of the community to people who are outside of the community. Also, I think um, even for people who aren't directly involved in building or using biohacks, but people who are maybe artists and uh, creatives who are representing those things in TV and movies and comic books, I think they can be allies in a huge way because right now a lot of the fear comes from the fact that as a society we've kind of gotten past the post-war everything's getting better every day approach to science, right? It used to be we had this idea of the future with a capital F, you know, the future. And it was flying cars and robot maids and food came in pills and sparkling crystalline cities. And um, we kind of lost that with everything that happened in the Cold War and since then. And the fact that the post-war bubble popped and people realized that they weren't going to be able to live comfortably off of a single person's salary necessarily, doing a cushy job. Everybody wasn't going to be part of the American dream. You know, that whole sort of thing dissolved and what it was replaced with was this dystopian uh, interpretation of the future where all of the things that we want to achieve, the implants, the augments, the control of your own destiny, all of that stuff comes along with all of the bad stuff of the future. So, you know, hyper-corporate, mega corporation sort of Gibsonian sprawl future. I, I think that that's really taken over the dialogue and it would be really inspiring to see more a positive futurism in media. And so if anybody listening is involved in media, yeah, like make some positive futurist art. Not everything about the future has to be like Black Mirror, you know? That's a cautionary tale. It's a cautionary tale not about the future, by the way. It's about today. It's the same as 1984. 1984 was not written about 1984. It was written about 1948. Black Mirror is not about what's going to happen when technology gets out of control. It's a commentary on what's happening now with technology. And don't look at all of these things and get discouraged uh, and think that that is the future that we're heading for, regardless of what we do now, that is the present that we're living in, and we can change it. And it's only one interpretation of the present. So yeah, I would say that there are, there's a political approach, and there's also just sort of a social approach of, of positive futurism. I think there was a brief period of time around sort of the singularity movement where there was some positive futurism. You know, you had people like Ray Kurzweil in the news all the time talking about how great the future was going to be. And unfortunately, that whole movement sort of got co-opted by, uh, I don't know what to call it, sort of very wealthy life extension sort of cult, <laughs> I think, that, you know, you have these sort of, I don't, you know, I, I'm, I'm not trying to cast dispersions here, but there is a sort of new agey, 
life extension slash futurist singulitarian mindset that's not particularly well informed by science that I think did a lot of damage to the whole idea of the singularity. And also, on the other hand, you have this, the type of people who are commenting on my RFID videos um, who are afraid, uh, also afraid of these visions of the future and will perpetuate this fear in society that, that doesn't need to be there. But it's a fear, it's a fear that comes from being misinformed and, and possibly being too invested in that misinformation to ever really let go of it. So I would say be open and transparent about what you are doing, what you want to do, what you think the world could be like if people were allowed to explore these things. And, and also just sort of be positive about the future. I, listen, I like a grimy post-apocalypse. Like I've, I've read everything that William Gibson's written. I love the mundane sort of hyper-corporate future that, that he's put forward because it feels very much like today. It's something that I can identify with. At the same time, I understand that there's a huge need to, to put forward a different vision of the future now. I think we, sh- we need to go back to the idealism that, that we used to have. And I know it's hard because of the, the realities that we're facing in politics and in the White House, but it's so important. We, we need to get back to talking about the future with a capital F. So you mentioned before about the, the issue of tech guys and tech guys and sorry, women, men, you know, guys as a, as a collective. Sure. Yeah. Um, coming together. And the issue is that we're, we're too literal. If, if you're, if you're going to step back away from that and now you're going to play the role of any random person, what do you think the future implants are? Or what, what do you think is missing or what do you think should be developed? The problem that a lot of people face on a daily basis right now is Luckily, uh, a problem that's easy to solve with biohacking, and that's authentication. We have avatars now of ourselves online that are always representing us, even when we're asleep. And the way that we currently manage them is with passwords. You know, we, we know magic words that lets us get in and tell the avatar what to say. But, you know, as we've seen over and over and over again, it's, it's I don't want to say easy, but definitely doable to get a hold of someone else's avatar and make them say whatever you want. And it becomes very hard for people to um, get out from under that sort of harassment. And if there was a better way for people to authenticate themselves to all of these systems that we're building, I think that we could cut off a lot of security problems uh, before they get really, really life crushing. The reason that we have things like awesome conventions like DEF CON is because people are interested in testing and, and making better these systems of security because they're such a huge part of our life day to day now. Having passwords is totally new for a lot of people. There's no reason a few decades ago that anyone would have something called a password in their life unless they were part of a secret society or something like that. And now everyone has hopefully more than one password and it's important to them. It lets them do their banking. It lets them talk to people online. Uh, So I think something beyond a password, you know, RFID, maybe some sort of uh, biometric authentication. I, I think devices that will help people authenticate themselves to computer systems, those augments are going to be the most widely accepted at first. And I think to that end, payment 
is going to be a big part of that because that's most of the authentication we do to computer systems is authorizing payments uh, on our behalf. You know, I think that that'll be sort of the first killer app for biohacking is going to be um, devices that let people authenticate themselves and make payments or do whatever it is they need to do with the computer system. Beyond that, I think it's just going to be sort of like a lot of convenience and vanity stuff for a while. You know, whether it's uh, not having to wear a phone headset to have a conversation or being able to, I mean, spectacles. It's basically a rebranding of the pervert glasses from eBay. But now, uh, you know, Snapchat sells them. And uh, that sort of idea, I think that devices like that, which are kind of vanity devices, kind of lifestyle devices, I think those will be a big thing. I don't know beyond that where it's going to go because I think that in solving those problems, we'll probably discover solutions to other problems that we're not even really aware are problems right now. I think biohacking is very much in that stage. What was the quote? Was it Henry Ford? Who said, was it, if Henry Ford had asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. And then he made a car, right? So it, that, that quote probably is butchered and apocryphal. But yeah, the idea, I think we're in the place now where people don't necessarily know what to ask for, but someone's going to come along and make something because they want to make it, and then it's going to be the big thing. And um, do you reckon the work being done by Dangerous Things, the Vivo Key, is going to be the solution to that issue? I think it'll be a solution for a lot of people. I don't know. There's a lot of hearts and minds that need to be changed about implanting things, especially when it comes to paying for things and particularly because of one very influential Bronze Age text. A lot of people are, are get concerned when you start talking about implanting things to represent money. I think that as far as a technical solution and as far as like a, a good product and a viable product on the market, I think he's come closer than anyone else to coming up with something that's really going to introduce people to biohacking. Because... You know, this is something that people do every day as they reach into their purse or their back pocket and they fumble through their wallet and they find the right card and they stick it in the thing and they wait forever for it to authenticate. And if you can make that a shorter process for people, I think they're interested. Even if they don't get the implant, I think knowing that people have the implant and knowing it's an option for them is going to change a lot of people's minds about what biohacking can do for them, practically speaking. I think uh, the importance on the fact that the Vivo key will, will be the first commercially available Java applet compatible card maybe opens the doors for the future. And as you're speaking about things like payment, we all know that that runs on a similar platform, the authentication, crypto algorithms. What I'd say to you is, do you think that there, there, there's a need for more trust when you use things in Vivo? So it could be the same as the card you have in your wallet, but are people going to suddenly think you can get hacked? They're going to take my money. Now it's inside. I think absolutely that belief exists. People, there's a problem around technical education. Uh, people don't know what's possible, and so they're afraid of things that they shouldn't be afraid of, and they're not afraid of things they should be afraid of. And um, that's, of course, going to extend to any product that is biohacking related. I know, you know, as soon as I tell anybody about the chip in my hand and, and that it can unlock my, my car, there's always one smart ass who says, you know, oh, well, so all I need is your hand to get into your car or, you know, and it's like, okay, well, come take it. Like, 
yeah, it would be much easier to steal my keys. Uh, you know, and there's all of this sort of like people can walk around with an RFID skimmer in their backpack and grab all of your codes. And it's, we are already open to, to, uh, I mean, our attack surface is so huge these days that talking about, you know, the dangers of, of RFID hacking is just barely a blip on the radar as far as what most people are going to experience. And I don't know how you educate people about that aside from just, you know, maybe the lesson to learn there isn't that people don't know how to assess risk and that's a bad thing. Maybe the lesson to learn is that people will accept risk when it becomes socially imperative. So when you need to have an iPhone or you need to have whatever, you just sort of accept the risk involved. You know, when you have to have an email address to do business, you accept the risk. And maybe that's the lesson to learn is that when people decide like, okay, my life would be easier overall if I could just pay for things without having to reach into my wallet or if I could unlock my front door or authenticate myself to Facebook without having to remember a password or anything like that or, or, or fumble through my keys. Like I think if people realize that that's worth it to them, they'll accept the risk and the people who complain about the risk are people who were not going to adopt the technology in the first place. Cause you would never be able to convince them that it's secure enough because they don't understand the technology well enough to, to make that assessment for themselves. Yeah. It's just a uh, leads a lot of questions, a lot of education for people because you know, especially talking about keys to your truck being such a big thing. All I need is your hand. Well, all I need is a rake, you know, a simple double-sided rake. I can pick the door on your car and start the car very easily. It's not that hard. If people yeah. realize the quality of locks that we depend on, then that would definitely change their point of view. And even further, you know, encryption, what have you. There, there's passwords in general. I can go on and on and say how far what we depend on is not safe, is broken, and needs change, but it will only probably lead to more panic in those type of people's minds because they're not educated in that. They're, they're not actively seeking to see how to be a part of the solution. And so part of the problem, really. Well, and also a lot of people don't understand the concept of understanding your threat model, right? Like my front door locks suck. I know they suck because I have to pick them all the time because I lock my keys inside. And, and, <laughs> <laughs> and so it doesn't bother me because I only have to protect against casual thieves. I'm not worried about somebody coming for me. You know what I mean? And, and so I think that's another thing people need to understand is our security isn't great but it doesn't need to be great in a lot of circumstances. So that's another thing to keep in mind when you're thinking about the security of these uh, bio devices. And, and just might as well just change your mindset to living as if, because if somebody wants in, whether it be a nation state or the guy next door, they're going to get in. It, yeah. Not much is going to take, take uh, for them to get in. You know, a pane of glass in your window is not going to stop somebody. I think it's uh, Kevin Mitnick that says you can have the most secure door in the world, but what about the thief that goes through the window? Yes. Yep. Yeah, exactly. There's always another attack vector to be able to come in. It's not easy to lock down every bit of your life. So you, know, you might as well minimize the risks and learn about them along the way. Uh, maybe have a few, have a beer with friends and go do some lock sport. 
if totally. nothing else, with this discussion and all the projects and plants we've mentioned and gone through, just makes me want to ask you furthermore, what's the biggest implant you want to make? You've mentioned you want to be the best cyborg that, you know, leaving an impression on someone to give them the best impression. Well, if you Googled your name, what do you hope will pop up first? That's a tough question to answer because I don't think that I know right now what the thing is going to be that is the coolest thing I do. But I do know that my, I want to get to the point where my ability to control the machines in my life, which have become a huge part of my life, my computer or my uh, car, whatever it is, I, I, I want to I have a more intimate sort of control over those things. I, I want to be able to get data from them and get data to them in a way that's much less manual um, so that I can have that sense of casual discovery when I'm not just, you know, a lot of people talk about they, they put magnets in their fingers and then they, they find these electric fields they didn't know were there. But imagine that sensation except when you're browsing the web and you find patterns you didn't know were there. Or, you know, like there are so many things that could jump out to us if we could find a way to more intuitively interact with all of these systems that we have to interact with on a day-to-day -day basis anyway. So I don't, I don't know what that means right now, practically speaking, but I do know that the main problem that we're trying to solve as biohackers is a translation problem. It's an IO problem, right? We, have, we understand our minds right now to have inputs and outputs. That's sort of the, that's sort of the boiled down understanding of how the nervous system reacts to things. And so our challenge, the challenge ahead of us is to make a universal bridge from the signaling that our minds use for inputs and outputs to the signaling that all of these other machines use for inputs and outputs. And so my biggest, you know, the ideal project for me is almost an Arduino-like interface, sort of a general purpose I.O., a GPIO port for the mind um, so that you can pipe in a video signal or an audio signal or some sort of data and also pipe that same sort of data back out. And to some degree, we can sort of do that, right? Like we have certain high bandwidth senses like vision and hearing um, that we can translate data and send in sort of the way that Neil Harbison does with his iBorg project. Um, he's translating um, visual data into sound data. And I, and you know, if you do that translation correctly, man, that's, that's, that's a huge step forward. And I think that that's our main problem is just, is just IO. And so I would, it would be, you know, a huge deal for me if I could find a way to generalize that to the point where no matter what your project is, this will be the solution to get you from the device in my hand to, to the core of, of what I am, which makes it sound about as hard as it is. So <laughs> I'm not the best programmer in the world. Uh, I'm much better at fabrication than I am at programming, but I, I would also love to work on the translation of data, you know, from say numerical data or visual data to sound. And the, I think the way you translate those things has a huge impact on 
how you experience them. I think that there are a lot of really misleading projects out there where like somebody says like, oh, this is what a tree, a slice of a tree sounds like when you play it on a turntable. And, you know, then they put the, they take the, the rings on the tree and they interpret them through a thing and they quantize it. And then they have a program that's only feeding pentatonic scale notes to it. And they're, and by the end of it, they've composed a piece of music. They're not interpreting any data they, they could have fed white noise into it. Right. So I think that if I could get in there and help people understand that uh, the interpretation of the data without losing the information in it, um, is really important. You don't want to alter the information on its way to you in a way that makes it useless to you. Um, so yeah, if if the things that I became known for were uh, a general purpose I/O uh, for for the brain, and short of that, some way of interpreting data um, so it can be fed into the senses that we do understand and already have, that would be enough for me. They both sound like great goals that um, I know myself. I'm definitely looking forward to in, in the future. Um, if that's what you want to achieve, thinking about everything that you've done, what's your biggest uh, achievement, would you say? You know, it's interesting. I, I haven't done a lot of... My, my involvement with the biohacking community was sort of slow getting started. I remember when I first had the idea of implanting LEDs into myself so that I could have like a light up tattoo or whatever. And I started to actually pursue that in a real way. You know, I started ordering Tigon tubing online and ordering little pieces of stainless steel tubing and building these devices. You know, I was, I was basically trying to build these not full implants, but kind of like surface mount surface staples, I guess is what they call them the body mod community. But I was trying to come up with, you know, how I was taking these little pieces of, of steel tubing, stainless steel surgical grade tubing and grinding a little recess out of them so I could slide them into this tiny little Tigon uh, implant grade uh, silicone tubing and then I could bend it in the tubing and create these rigid bends so that the implant would flex where I wanted it to and not where I didn't want it to. And I was developing this, you know, I was hand soldering these little Luxion Rebel LEDs and stuffing them into tubes and trying to figure out how this implant would work. And uh, I approached a body piercer in my local area. This is where I grew up, where I was living at the time in, in south southwestern Virginia. And um, he was just really sort of, you know, he didn't trust me to know what I was talking about. And he understandably was really protective of his of his sort of trade information body artists typically are very protective of their trade and of the things that they've learned and and um, they feel like like it's their responsibility to protect people from doing stupid things to themselves and so you know he was pretty discouraging this particular person about the overall endeavor and had some less than scientifically informed opinions about how electricity might affect the body and healing process and things like that. And, and so, you know, X that sort of discouraged me from getting involved right away. And so that never really um, panned out. I never finished that project. I went on to do other things and kind of got out of biohacking for a while, but I would say that, you know, my biggest achievement was just like getting back in and getting my first uh, RFID tag. I mean, I've built things that were cooler, right? Like 
I built a wearable computer a couple years ago that I really liked. It was finally like almost a practical system with a heads up display. And um, I was writing a JavaScript based sort of app that had a heads up display that was displaying different sort of like, you know, almost like a Grand Theft Auto style heads up readout of things that are important in my life, you know? And that was a really cool project for me, but it wasn't as satisfying as the feeling of actually, you know, cutting open my hand and putting a device in there and knowing like, all right, like it's the future now. Like I have a chip in my hand, you know? And and so I would say as far as work that I've personally done, it's hard for me to say what I'm most proud of. There are a lot of little tiny hacks that I've done that I've been really psyched about. I would say the thing in biohacking I'm most proud of is just doing my own implants. Uh, and they're, they're just kits that I bought at Dangerous Things. But just the action of doing that really made me feel good uh, about the whole endeavor. But as far as things that I've actually developed myself, I would say the first time that I booted up a wearable computer that I built, which was years and years ago now, I think I was just out of high school. I had hacked a Victor Max Stuntmaster heads-up display. This was a super low-res head-mounted display that they built for the Super Nintendo. And uh, I had bought one on eBay, and I hacked it apart because it was a time... you know, at the time, it was a tiny LCD. It was probably two inches or something across. And it had a composite video input. So I knew I could feed S-Video into it from my laptop. And I set that up. And then I got a webcam, a cheap webcam on eBay. And I zip-tied it to the side. And I plugged that in. And I just booted up VLC. And I started playing with video filters. I just fed the webcam directly into the screen and just started playing with video filters. And carrying my laptop around the house... And when I realized that I could turn on the video filters and like filter out every color from my field of vision, except for a certain bandwidth. And it would be really like at a glance, I could see all the red things in the room. Like they instantly popped out or I could see all the blue things in the room or whatever. Like that was huge for me. That was just like the pivotal moment of like, you know, even though my eyes are super strained looking at the screen through a, plastic magnifier taped to my head and you know it's super grainy and I can see the pixels I'm modifying all of this information before it gets to my brain and I have total control over what I see and that was just so huge I was super proud of that you've mentioned it before that if anybody was in your area and wanted to talk about it or share some projects with you how are people just generally able to keep up to date with your own work, your projects, et cetera? Um, well, I've, I've tried over the years to, to keep up with websites and blogs and things like that. And, you know, it's, it's so hard to, to keep posting things uh, and keep a blog up to date, especially when my job is keeping SparkFun's blog up to date you know, I'm already creating so much content for work that creating content on my own feels like work again. So you can watch fringeengineering.com, fringe, F-R-I-N-G-E, and then E-N-G-I-N-E-E-R-I-N-G. So it's fringeengineering. You can watch that place. Uh, I might update it uh, in the future uh, with more projects uh, as I have more time to document things. I would say that the, your best bet is just to um, friend me on Facebook um, or follow me on Twitter. I'm North Allen Pool. 
on Twitter. And I take a lot of pictures of what I'm working on. Even when I don't have time to fully document something, I take a lot of Instagram pictures and those all get cross posted to Facebook and Twitter. And I'll tweet about something when I'm working on it. I tweet a lot of pictures of my whiteboard, you know, if I'm working on something. So yeah, I would say just follow me on Twitter um, or follow me on Facebook. And that's the surest bet. And, and usually if I, if I'm doing something really big and really cool, it's something that I, that was a personal project of mine that I've weaseled into spark fun somehow. Um, so, uh, the best documented, the biggest, coolest projects are all going to be on spark fun. And that's not a plug. Uh, that's just sort of the way it goes, uh, when you work, uh, in the field that I work in. So, um, yeah. And, and I'll tweet about all that stuff too. So yeah, just follow me on social media and, hopefully in the future I'll have a blog where I can sort of do deeper documentation about this sort of thing. Um, that kind of goes back to my <laughs> guilt about not giving back to the open source community, but, but yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully I can get that up and going, but, um, for the time being, social media is fine. I was just going to say, um, from, from a personal standpoint, uh, I wanted to thank you for um, making the video on spark fun with the RFID implant, because, uh, like I said to Dave, when we had him on a few weeks ago, when I was, I had the implant carried around, as you were saying, for a while. And um, they're, they're the only, well, yeah, for five, for five months I carried it around, actually. Um, and then randomly decided to do it on a random, random evening. But um, those two videos at the time were like the only two videos around. And so I must have watched your video about seven or eight times as, I'm, as I was actually <laughs> doing the, the implant. I've got a video of me doing it, and I'm pretty sure you're in the background doing nice. like, <laughs> it, it's, it's a very good video but um it also makes me think i was thinking today of, of how how different it is now and it's not been a long time since i've seen that maybe you know was it a year now something like that um but in this year the amount of videos that are now going up we see almost a video every month now of, of someone doing the procedure or you know pictures at least and things like that and it's just it seems to have sort of exploded. And I don't know if you guys feel the same way about that or if it's just something that I'm, I'm just sort of imagining. No, I think you're right. Uh, at the time that I made that video, part of the reason that I made it, aside from just, you know, our videographer volunteering to do it, one of the reasons that I, that I sort of scripted it the way that I did is because I was so frustrated with the videos that existed because, I mean, they were all, anybody who's doing this and documenting it is doing really cool stuff. And I don't mean to discourage anybody who puts up a grainy cell phone video because at least, man, at least you're giving back to the community in some way and you're encouraging people to get involved. But man, if you're trying to figure out how to do this safely and you're, you know, sitting at home with your kit and you're, and you're trying to decide if you want to do it, uh, a lot of those early YouTube videos were not gonna help you <laughs> they were the YouTube video itself was usually a little bit sketchy and then the comment section was just pure garbage lots of people arguing over what's safe what's not safe and things like that and I really wanted to make a video that was brightly lit clearly shot and walked you through the procedure not just so that people could do it themselves but also so people could understand what I had done so that they knew that it wasn't super scary. It was just, you know, it was like going and getting a vaccination, basically. It's no big deal. But yeah, I'm, dude, I, it's awesome to hear that, that, uh, that you watch my video and, and uh, that it was a, a resource for you because, yeah, I, I agree. I saw the same thing, like, in this past year, 
there have been just so many more both YouTube videos and also like news appearances by people who have, you know, it seems like everybody who gets a chip in their hand and talks about it, like they become like the cyborg of wherever they are and the local news wants to do a story about it. And I think that's really cool. You know, that sort of helps normalize it for people. So yeah, I have definitely noticed what you're talking about in, in more prevalence and more, just sort of like more content out there, more videos, more blog posts, more news stuff coming from people in the past year. And if I had anything to do with that, then yeah, I'm super psyched. Because you never know if I didn't get that done or it went wrong, I maybe not be sitting here. So uh, <laughs> right. if, if you can go to bed tonight smiling, knowing that that's, you know. <laughs> that will do it. That'll do it. Spark this off, then that's great. I think um, another good video to watch just, just for the fun is, um, I think there's a video of your video uh, where someone analyzes it step by step of how, you, how you're trying to convince everyone to uh, conform to the... Uh, Oh, I haven't, if, I have not seen that, but I want to watch that now. And I think actually at the moment, I think you're the, the comments of the more, I don't want to say sane, the more, you know, the no, more educated people. Yeah, um, that's probably fair. Yeah, that, is that fair? Um, are sort of taking over at the moment. So you've got a lot of people saying, wow, what is with these people, blah, 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 blah. So I think your video, if anything, is pretty good. I mean, <laughs> I, I put a video up of, of my implant, I think, and... Um, I have the same thing. My favorite comment, I think, was uh, Ashley will burn in the fire of ashes. Ashley ashes? Like, they've actually made, like, a, a beautiful name name pun there. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of those things. That's so insane. <sighs> and then you got yeah. people, people like me commenting, saying, where did you get this biblical response? It's like, come on, really? Yeah. And just trying best to pull them out of their idiocracy and you know, get them to at least realize how full of it they actually are. Uh, as a guy that went to seminary that actually worked in ministry, I just want to slap them up the side of their head and say, get some sense. And that's what it is. They're, they're afraid of things that are different and they hate people that are different. And also they want to feel like they know something that, you know, they, I'm sure that in, in the rest of their life, they feel a little bit out of the know and they want to feel like they're tuned into something other people don't know about and that they can be an expert about. And it's easy to be an expert about something when you make everything up. So a lot of people do it. And I, you know, it's, it's rough because on one hand they are perpetuating a, a huge social problem. On the other hand, they're sort of victims of that same problem. I've argued with them too. I came close to seminary myself. I was raised in a Presbyterian church. I uh, was a confirmed Presbyterian. I did the whole thing. I, I uh, gave sermons. I like, I really took that whole thing to its full conclusion. I came out of it deciding that I, I didn't need any of it. And, and I don't personally believe in a, in, in God or any of that. Uh, I realize other people go through that experience with a totally different, you know, they come out of it on the other side with a totally different experience and that's totally fine. But yeah, I'm informed enough about at least certain flavors of teachings about the Bible that the people who are using, I, I, I can understand even as an atheist, the people who are using the Bible to bash RFID technology and to talk about, you know, a hellfire and brimstone future. They don't represent that community and they don't uh, have a leg to stand on. <laughs> you know, it's not a biblical argument. It's a social argument. 
And I argued that with people in the comments. I'm sure you've seen me arguing with people about revelations and about like, I just can't do it anymore. But I have seen more people doing it, which makes me feel a little bit better. As Cursor said, there are, there are, I don't know if it's more educated, but more supportive people in the comments now than there were before. It's really funny when you look at the history of that movement or that cult, that it's not the first time that they've said, oh, that's the mark of the devil. Social security cards, bank accounts, paper money. All of that has been the mark of the devil. And it's like, really, guys, which, which one was actually in uh, Revelation? Was at Revelation actually more for telling the destruction of Jerusalem by Nero? Or was it something off in the future? Who knows? Who cares? Well, yeah, That's may- for each of us to figure out on our own. And to stop messing Absolutely. with my wallet. Absolutely. Yes. And, yeah, it's another case of, 1984 was written about 1948, right? Like that, I, I am, yes, one of those people who believes that that was a historical account, an allegorical account of what was happening at the time, which would have been much more useful than another fortune teller because they had plenty of fortune tellers. It's not a theological podcast. (laughs) Uh, I try to make it not (laughs) though. You know, we each bring our own sauce. Sure. But anyway, just play, um, want to ask for final comments questions from hosts and even you for us if you if you have any if i had any questions to you guys it would just be like i I would just want to get sort of a i don't know how to ask the question but you talk to so many people involved in this community directly through this podcast is there an overarching theme to what people are trying to do or is there like a big project that people all seem interested in like is there anything that that you guys have sort of discovered through doing this podcast that the rest of us wouldn't be privy to (laughs) over and over again i guess the overwhelming thing that i've learned is everybody i've talked to is unbelievably intelligent half the time i'm ending up having to have an extra window up to Google what in the hell they're saying. And then it leads, that's why there's so many jumps always. And every rundown always changes every time because there's always something, some different flavor that just leads us into something else. It's just like, ah, and even listening to it later on while editing it, you know, I'll listen to it like, you know, four or five times, at least um, the full length and just be like, damn, I really wish I would have asked this question. And we're, we're going to probably cover this when we do a live taping at DEF CON this summer and uh, include the audience in the questions that are asked to the whatever guest we have, which I will keep that as a, a, an Easter egg for then, if for those people that show up or later on listen to the audio recording or watch it on YouTube. And I just, I'll apologize now for those people that have no idea uh, what they're in for, but hey, I'm going to make it fun one way or another. Last year at DEF CON, when I spoke, I turned it into a drinking game with my audience. And uh, that is actually a teaser for this year. If you haven't decided on whether or not you're going to be at DEF CON, we're going to make a game of it again. And we're going to make it fun. So if you haven't decided if you're going to DEF CON or not, I would show up for the fun. If not, maybe we can have some more fun the next year. But you better show up and have some fun if you're coming. (laughs) 
<laughs> just what what is everybody interested in? What is everybody's problems? Always is power. Like you say, there's an IO IO issue. It's not the first time I've heard uh, of a biohacking Arduino of sorts. I don't, I don't remember if it was a Grindhouse Arduino or a Grind Arduino. I think that's what uh, Grindhouse Wetware called it when we had Tim Cannon on. And then again, when uh, another one of his associates was on. This is the kind of thing I would love to see such creative minds as you being a fab and electronics guy but also uh, are very interested in biohacking, getting with people like with Dangerous Things, helping them to get off the bench and create a flex LED. Because, yeah, I've got, a, I've got a tattoo right here that I need to light up. It's, you know, it's the bulb for the Dangerous Minds podcast. I want it to be able to put my phone at the base of it and light it up. One day, I hope to get that. That's going to be a painful to get that channel run and get the get it in there. I know how much pain because uh, I already had a flex implant that, uh, mostly without painkillers. I don't want to do that again, but uh, I, it'd be worth it. But, yeah, flex LED, would love to see it. Grind Arduino, would love to see it. I'm, I'm hoping I can, if you ever get to either like the Body Hacks Con in Austin or DEF Con in Vegas, uh, if Tim's around, I'm going to drag y'all t- together and give y'all both a beer and say, hey, let's talk. Because uh, I think you both have something you can share. Yeah, and, and that uh, sounds great to me. I would love to make it out there either this year or next year. And yeah, uh, get involved with some, some of the stuff that's going on. Yeah, and it's the better gifted people that we can get together collaborating as a community, the easier it is to make those jumps, make those leaps and eventually have a Gibson ish uh, full on shadow run type of augmentation and really give those uh, gray beard conservatives something to scream about <laughs> because, Hey, the future's coming, whether we like it or not, we can't just live in the imagined remembered utopia of our youth the future comes whether we want it or not. So we might as well start planning ahead and make it better because if we don't work on it, then that's going to leave somebody in China, somebody in North Korea, somebody in Hong Kong to fabricate our own idea and sell it at a cheaper price. You want to know about that? Ask about Grindhouse and their Alibaba incident where they found their North Star uh, sitting on Alibaba for like seven bucks a piece. They're like, how? How can someone sell that? Well, it's called they are, it's basically someone trying to con them into send, sending some sort of design to be able to get the fabrication deal from you. And no, they're, they're not going to actually sell it to you. I tried to buy a hundred of them because I wanted to see what it would happen, especially if uh, I then get a nice batch to be able to do some independent testing on and see is the silicone even biosafe or is it some toxic crap they got sitting in a drum in the back and they're like, Hey, let's use this stuff. It's cheap. Those stupid fat Americans, they won't know a difference. They just like it cheap as hell. Just like their uh, McDonald's, uh, anything for a dollar, right? Off the value menu. We'll give them a, a nice little implant for seven bucks. It'll kill you, but Hey, you'll buy it. You'll buy anything, right? That whole thing is really interesting to me because that you're right that that tactic we see it all the time in, in the rest of the electronics community. I, I don't know that we can expect Alibaba to. 
I don't know. There are a lot of suppliers on Alibaba. It's probably not their fault these people were on there. But, you know, like you said, there are these Chinese suppliers who are just putting things up. So basically they're saying, we can make something like this, but you have to tell us how to make it. And then once you tell them how to make it, they'll, they'll make it all right, and then they'll sell it to everybody. Yep. And um, that happens in every kind of device that you can find. And it's, it is scary that it's beginning to happen with these, with these grinds, you know, with products like, like the things that they're working on at Grindhouse Wetware. I mean, like you said, these are not the kind of things that you want to buy at Shenzhen Bob's, you know, low price emporium. On the other hand, people's motivations for doing that probably isn't to get rich. It's probably to keep eating. Um, I understand that living and working in a lot of these places is, is rough and you know, they're going to do what they're going to do. The biggest thing is, is making sure people are informed enough not to buy the knockoffs. And also just because there are a lot of Chinese knockoffs, it's, I'm not sure how to approach saying this. I, I think everyone in the modern world is probably in agreement that the communist Chinese government is not a great government from a human rights perspective. Most Chinese agree with that and most everyone else in the world agrees with that. And because it's a communist government, supporting industry in China does support the government to a pretty decent extent. And so it's hard, but there are people also in China who are part of this community and are working on things that are legitimate. And it's not their fault that there are bad suppliers there also who are ripoff artists who are doing crappy things uh, for the community. So I think on one hand, like I want to say like not everything, you know, everything does come from China. Like people say, Oh, don't buy the Chinese one. It's like, yeah, but they're all the Chinese one. Like, let's be honest, like lots of very high end stuff is made in China as well. That's just the way it is. And I think that, I know this wasn't the point of what we were talking about, but I just wanted to touch on the fact that like, like I'm in the process right now of, of learning Mandarin because I think that there is going to be a huge maker um, explosion in, especially in Shenzhen because it's a manufacturing hub. It's a port city and it's bordering with Hong Kong, which is, uh, you know, being a special administrative district, it's, it's a much more westernized, and not to use westernized as a, as a synonym for modernized, but you know, it's a much more uh, sort of personal freedom focused <laughs> place to be. And so I think the combination of those things makes Shenzhen a really important place uh, here in the next few decades. And I think that um, welcoming people who are living and working there to work on these things and not to work with those suppliers you know, don't go be an engineer for those people, you know, work on the, the, the groundbreaking stuff. Don't make clones, I think is going to be a really big deal. Sorry to hijack that. that whole no, thing. That's fine. And it, it makes me remember that much more about one, uh, one maker's comment about it. It's like, I can throw up a Kickstarter and before my Kickstarter is even done, Hong Kong's got a knockoff on Alibaba or what some other marketplace. And it, it just makes global manufacturing and global research and design that much more in focused as being one, possibly a problem, but also insane to the point of 
how can we harness that type of focus in a positive way instead of knocking off things? Yeah. Can't we just harness that ability to grasp and replicate instead? Let's grasp at something that we can't currently build and jump forward. Yeah. Don't, yeah. I don't want to just get these manufacturers out of my way. I want to get them on my side. If they're that creative and that gifted to be able to replicate a product that easily that takes somebody forever to research and develop on their own, what else do you think they could do given the opportunity and the challenge to instead of just replicate somebody else's work, but to instead work with them, uh, the person that they ripped off and then push the boundary that much further? It's like, hey, I liked your design, but I saw some flaws when I was copying it. Here's here's the next generation that I could I see could easily be better. You could do this to increase your battery life. Do this to incorporate more functionality in the device and make it just so much better. Instead of releasing another uh, version one, it's like, hey, why don't we work together and bring out version two before version one even came out? Yeah, there's a YouTuber called Big Clive. Uh, he has a YouTube channel called BigClive.com, and his whole channel is taking apart cheap Chinese electronics that he buys on Banggood or Alibaba or whatever, eBay, or sometimes just at you know Poundland or wherever. And then he takes it apart, and he does a really in-depth technical teardown of it. And um, one of the interesting things that he'll do is he will latch on to a series of products and then he'll do a teardown of them sort of as they evolve, as they get ripped off from one manufacturer to another. And it is interesting to see that there are these minor changes and improvements and optimizations that happen as designs get ripped off. Because a lot of the time, the only thing that they have to go on is what the thing appears to do, not how it does it. So they come up with a new way of how to do it. Or they buy a lot of the PCBs from the factory that was making them and they populate it with different parts entirely or they make a little addition onto it that they can solder on and you know do something else with it and it's just yeah it's really fascinating to see there is some innovation in the cloning that's happening and if you could harness that innovation then you could do some I mean there are maker spaces in Shenzhen right now taking advantage of that culture of I can have an idea in the morning and by the end of the day, I can have a prototype on my desk, you know, because the factory is down the street. And so, uh, yeah, I think if, if you can harness that, then, then you could make a lot of really big leaps really quickly, which I think is, is both a positive thing because uh, it, it helps everybody but I think it's probably also a, uh, a cautionary tale, you know, if you subscribe to the idea that if China does it first, it's less likely to become public. So, you know, I think it's probably important to reach out to the maker community in China and biohackers in China. I, I'm sure it's much harder to do it there than it is to do it in uh, the U.S. or the U.K. The language barrier is, I'm beginning to understand now much much a much bigger barrier than than I think a lot of people understand and um, yeah I would love to see I would love to see people trying to shift these Chinese manufacturers off of the side of trying to make the super cheap knockoff and onto our side of making our things for us that are 
and helping us improve them using all the knowledge that they've acquired, you know, trying to make things for less. I definitely uh, would love to hear your feelings on the tonals because, you know, one run wrong, wrong step. You got a totally different word. Uh, there's one interesting thing I'll share about that is that there are, you know, in, in what's called in Mandarin Chinese, which is what uh, uh, is the official the official language of the government and what most people speak in mainland China, uh, if I understand correctly, there are only four tones really. And it is weird to, to try to keep track of it, but um, we sort of have analogs of that in the English language to a certain extent. The words bellow and below are two different words. And it's really no different in Chinese, you know, the, the fact that, you know, ma and ma are two different words. Another thing is that in, it, it seems to me, and, and I am still very much an outsider, I know about 320 words of Mandarin. It seems to me that even if you're a poor speaker of Mandarin, people can use context clues to figure out what the hell you're talking about. And in a lot of modern Chinese, like pop music, there is no tonality in it. The tonality gets um, obliterated for the melody. Uh, in traditional Chinese music, the melody was written to accentuate the tonality. But with pop music, there's not really any room for that because it's so formulaic. So there are no tones in Chinese pop music or Chinese hip hop and rap, for instance. But people generally get what's being said because you can use context to figure out what's being said, uh, which is really no different from in the US. If you played me any given hip hop track for the first time, I would never catch all the lyrics, but you'd get a feeling for what's going on. So yeah, tonality is really interesting. I would prefer to learn a language that wasn't tonal, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's really not that hard. I think there's a lot of people are scared of Mandarin because, they, because they've been told that it's a really hard, really extra difficult foreign language. Speaking and understanding it really isn't that hard. If you want to write it and read it as well as speak and understand it, then yeah, you've got a whole lot of work to do. But if you just want to speak and listen, it's no harder than, you know, I took Spanish in middle school. It's not a lot harder than that. Sure, sure. <laughs> Bukechi. <laughs> so uh, did I buy you enough time there, Cursor? Can we go to the question again? <laughs> Oh, yeah. Uh, the question was just as uh, a host of this podcast, listening to and getting to talk to all of these people involved in the biohacking community, you know, are there any overarching problems that people are trying to solve or sort of overarching knowledge that you've gathered from talking to all of these people that might be useful to sort of redistribute out to us now? <laughs> I'll concur with um, Cooper in the sense that every, everyone that we've spoken to is, is like on a different level. Every single time I come onto this podcast, I'm, I'm shocked by the time I finish it. And I usually end up messaging, messaging Cooper after and saying, that was, that was awesome. Like, loved it. You know? And this, this is something that happens all the time. At the start, when we first started doing it, I've never even done a podcast before then. So it was a case of, oh, that was quite cool. Yeah, this is, this is really cool. And it just kept happening, kept happening. And the, the actual, like, the level of, of effort and time and investment from people in the community is I've never seen it ever. People will learn, you know, if, if they're doing things like in vivo applications, they'll learn everything about 
you know, the anatomy, it's things that, that you, you wouldn't even consider, you know, things like, you know, the whole iodine argument with the fact that, you know, some doctors don't wait for it to dry and, you know, th things like this, right? The thing that I think I've seen a lot is everyone is, is almost still separate, se separated. You know, everyone's got their own grind and it's like, you know, what's your goal? And I mean, people have spoken sort of across the idea of um, collaboration and, I don't know how easy that's going to be. It's, it's probably a, a challenge that will hit this community bigger than anyone else because it's something that people take so personally. It's not just a project or, or, or a hobby almost. It's, it's something that's like part of you and something that, that you almost internalize as, as you know, uh, a really, really important thing. So collaborations of, of such like magnitude and importance are really difficult because people have different goals and things like that. But that being said, you have like some of the greatest minds that I've, I've, I've ever been spoken to. Right? And if there was some, some sort of area of collaboration, I think there should be a, there should be a push for that. Um, especially when you've got uh, companies, you know, no names, but you know, you've got, you've got companies that compete against other companies. They have very, very like for like products. And it's almost, if one person could speak to the other person or, you know, if, if some other people could come together and we could move away from the, you know, grinder in a garage to, you know, the whole community coming together. I think that is where we need to hit the most. And to be honest, when we, when we started this, you know, we were just three guys that were like interested in, in the community. There was, there was no real, Oh, let's do this to get this. Let's do this, you know, for, for this purpose. And, I now like to think that we're sort of providing that platform to, to allow people to understand what other people are doing and also to see more of who they are as opposed to, oh, there's a name in an article, oh, this guy. Because, like, for example, you know, Rich, Rich Lee, I've, I've read about the stuff that Rich has done, et cetera, et cetera. But until we had him on, he's probably the nicest guy anyone will meet. He's, he's lovely, right? And like, to hear the things that he's going through as well on like a more personal level was very, very difficult because I remember the, we, we had Rich on and you know, it was like a normal episode. He did mention what, what, what was happening and we actually asked him to come back. And that, that podcast was probably the hardest podcast we've ever done because I remember at the end of it, like Cooper's sign off was like, I, I, I've never seen it ever before. And I think at that moment it, it kind of, became apparent it was it was a bit more than us just sitting down on a on a sunday night or afternoon for you guys and just doing a podcast you know it, it had a meaning it was a platform it, it's something we're actually driving for and like i remember coming off of that podcast and literally we, we would there was nothing that we could say because it it was so true to like the core of someone you know that that's his own like personal problem or issue he needs to overcome but it's not it's it's a community thing and that's where we need to break down the individualism of of the community and i think when we get that done i think that'll be the big thing and i've, I've had so much focus on the idea of getting into the mainstream or oh, we need something that's you know marketable or profitable or blah blah blah, blah, blah. but I, I don't even think it's that anymore i think i think adoption will come and I don't think we should be so focused on, you know, we want everyone to be chipped by 2020. It's not like that, right? So if we, if we continue to go at, you know, an, an X, like a rate 
you know, exponential or, you know, and, and, and build on other people's projects, as you guys just mentioned in, in terms of, you know, the, the copying of other people's devices. If we adopt that same philosophy, then everything else will come after. Of course, you've got then the issues, things like funding, you know, you kind of need one to buy the other. And, and these are issues that, that together we, we, need to, we need to look at. But I think we, we should begin to think of it less as, oh, this group's doing this and this group's doing this and this group's doing this and more, okay, we're doing this and we're, we've got this branch that's doing this and we've got this branch that's doing this. And um, for me, that's the biggest realization of, of having different people from totally, totally different like areas so yeah, that, that's, that's, that's what I'd say for that. Yeah, that's awesome. I totally agree. Yeah. More, I, th- I think you have this problem of people being really um, protective of the thing they're working on. They want to be the person who, who rolls it out. I totally understand that. But most of the time what happens when you do that is you never get there. So then somebody else has to start from scratch. You know, I've listened, I haven't listened to uh, all of the podcast, obviously you guys have been doing this for a little while now but i've listened to enough of it to to be like to feel the same way that there are just so many really gifted people working on this stuff that they're super passionate about and yeah if there's any lesson that i've learned from the the rest of the sort of like maker community it's if you can collaborate with people and really make it feel like we're all working on something together, trying to solve a problem together, sort of the way you see people trying to solve a programming problem on Stack Exchange, you know? That sort of like, I wanna, I wanna come up with a solution to this, like tell me all the, tell me everything, you know? I, I think, yeah, that's, that's huge. That's the biggest thing right now, collaboration. I think also like the drive is there, the, the passion is there, as I'm saying, like you, you can't compare it to anywhere else. And like, if you, if you even looked at this as a business, you'd say, you know, we've got two of three great ingredients. And the last one I think is that, is that missing cement bit that is, is bringing the bricks together to make the wall. Yeah. It's a community, like, like you said, and uh, this being the day we're recording happens to be father's day. And as a father, it just seems uh, almost fitting to share an update on what's going on with Rich. Like I I checked with him because I mainly was uh, working on trying to work out my uh, driving to DEF CON. And I've got another guy from AHA, Austin Hackers Association, riding with me. And we were still trying to figure out our route because we were talking about driving. Somebody's got notifications. Yeah, sorry. All right. But, but anyway, um, what, what I was saying is uh, we're driving out to DEF CON. Uh, for the fun of it, we were going to set up a few uh, GoPros in the car and have discussions. And I was just like, well, you know, are there any other grinders that we can pick up along the way they're going and then enhance the discussion? The first person I thought of I wanted to get in the car was Rich, even though he's not that far from Vegas and it would be – a bit of a detour to get to him because he's in Utah. I'm just like, what the hell? That'd be, that'd be fun. So I asked him, he's like, no, I can't. I'm actually going to be going late because uh, I think his last day in court is uh, the 27th. And he, he had told me that he's gotten a lot of support from the community. Uh, Mark Dockerson and Josiah Sayer came out and testified about biohacking. And 
basically tried to make it real as far as what biohacking and grinding is and that it's not just self-harm. It's, it's self-exploration and um, wanting to explore their own reality within their own body, what have you. And I can't think of two better guys that you know were able to come out there on their own dime and, and do that out of their own time. I'm sure there, there'd probably be a line of people that would love to do it, but it just, it's, it's awesome when the community stands up and says, Hey, you're a dad. We want you to continue to be a dad and to be a part of your kid's life. We'll stand up for you. And that's, that's why we've been doing the, the spots. Um, not because we, we're getting nothing for it. The funny part about this podcast is it costs us more than we'll ever make. We actually got a second, uh, since our last recording, we got a, a second Patreon sponsor and it's hilarious because I was just like, okay, so we got more than one now. <laughs> it's still, you know, it's hilarious how, how little it brings in, but it's still kind of awesome when somebody says, Hey, I believe in what you're doing enough. I'll sign up. And it cracks me up at that point, just saying that much more. Just want to say, Hey, to them, did you ever want to get involved? What cons do you go to? Or, uh, are you a part of the community kind of thing when I reach out to them after that? And it's funny, when, uh, their first reaction is, I just wanted to help. I thought it was great. I, I stumbled upon it because it's not like something we advertise. Uh, it's just a, a side link on our Facebook page that basically says sign up. Uh, and it's hilarious because you're like, sign up for what? Click on that and it brings that up. And it was meant to be an Easter egg because I'm not going to be uh, out there saying, Hey, give us your money. We're running for president, blah, blah, blah. No, uh, we got enough idiots in the White House. You don't need me. But when it comes down to it, uh, what do we think we're going to get out of this? We got into this to learn. I'll be selfish and say after DEF CON last year, I came back finally eliminating all the excuses saying, all right, uh, I'm going to do it. Uh, I'll just do it by myself if I have to. Uh, I had been doing a, a network security podcast myself with some other people from uh, San Antonio Hackers Association, a uh, real close area to me. And it was starting to wind down as far as interest from all the members doing it. So I was just like, yeah, I think it's fine to finally, instead of be a circle of talking heads, jerking each other off about hacker news, what have you, let's reach out and say, tell me about how you did it. Tell me about what you're doing. Share with me the person that you are, uh, what you most want to be remembered for, what have you, and I'll turn around and share that with others and hopefully inspire more people to get involved and collaborate with you, if not come up with something that they've been sitting on forever. Yeah, that's, that's what brings me and Cursor out continued on. That's what makes me put in extra time editing stuff and Cursor picking up the slack for me when I can't plain and simple we're here to learn and here to share and thankful for people like you nick and I'm, I'm very glad that you took the time today i don't know what your schedule was today you know it being a bit of a holiday <laughs> yeah. uh, but i figured it, it's it's worth some of my time even being a dad to um take the time and see what what we can learn thanks so much for having me on here because uh, and I'm definitely now I'm going to go back and, and <laughs> listen to all the back catalog of all these things. And there are a lot more people involved in this than I think a lot of people realize. And this podcast, I think, does a huge 
service by just exposing more of the work that's being done so people can get involved. And we've got a lot of back catalog to share as well. That's why uh, our DEF CON episode is going to be labeled as the 100th episode, but it's going to be 100th published. I'm sitting on at least 400 gigs of video from different cons to publish into audio and uh, through Cursor's help to YouTube. It's insane the amount of content that's headed our way. Um, not just us recording, but other groups saying, hey, we want to share because you know, we're a small con. We don't, we don't get the kind of traffic. People have never heard of it. And, you know, biohackers and people interested in colonizing Mars, what the hell? Let's talk together. This might work. Crazier things have happened. You know, we've actually gone to the moon. Why not go back? You know, you never know. But definitely want to say a special thanks again for taking the time to talk to us today. For me and Cursor, we, we just want to thank you. And definitely want to say furthermore to our listeners, if you want to learn more about this journey that we take weekly, please check out DangerousMinds.io. And all of us want to thank you for joining us as we further explore this thing, this, this tech, and the people behind it like this gentleman here today. It's growing. It's changing daily. And we can call it biohacking, grinding, implantable technology, but it's, it's exploring our own environment. It's exploring our own reality. If you have any questions or comments, or if you want to get involved, feel free to reach out to us. You know, you can find us at dangerousminds.io, our Facebook page, which is just facebook.com slash dangerousmindspodcast. Perhaps one day we'll talk to you about the work and our projects you're exploring and developing. But until next week, prior to this was higher than science could ever devise. This is a neural interface. We're gonna stick it in your face, till it in your brain and interlace. There's an arms war on and we're gonna win the race. Leave everything a race, bring the base. Hey, it's that language, remember? Alright. <laughs> but but it's but but Nike isn't. Nike is like Greek. Yeah. Right? Uh, is, Roman? Is, I don't know. I don't know. But <laughs> not a clue. Nike?